Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Smart People Podcast. Podcast for smart people where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stamp here. Look at the speed. Told you I was going to speed up the um, the intros and I'm feeling frisky. Listen, this week on the show, we are interviewing Sharon Ranganath. And it still blows my mind that I get to talk to people like this. Consistently, he is a professor at the Center for Neuroscience and Department of Psychology and director of the Dynamic Memory Lab at the University of California at Davis. For over 25 years, he studied the mechanisms in the brain that allow us to remember. He's used brain imaging techniques, computational modeling, studies of patients, and much more to be what's considered one of the leading, if not the leading expert on memory. So, of course, that's what we're talking to him about today. Now, yes, he did write a book. The title is Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. This is a badass subject. There are people you know that would want to listen to this. You get to sound smart and help us out if you send it to them. I mean, genuinely, just hit the little share icon, text it to them, be like, cool podcast. That's it. If you do that and make sure you follow slash subscribe, whatever it's called these days, like that is all we need. It genuinely helps. I'm just a guy in my home podcast studio having these conversations for like 15 years. And I love it. And I hope you do too. We're at smartpeoplepodcast.com. If you like the show, want to stay connected, email me smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Many of you have. I put you in a folder, reach out with Things we've got going on, updates, ideas, questions, feedback, etc. Smart people podcast at gmail.com. Let's get into it. Our conversation 
with Sharon Ranganath about his new book, Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. Enjoy. You're not necessarily advocating for let's improve our memory. It's more about like, first, can we understand our memory? Why not just write another book, given your expertise about how we can remember better? Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is that I think when people think about improving their memory, you got to ask yourself, what is an improved memory, right? So, uh, and I always tell people, don't remember more, remember better. And the reason I say that is because people have, I think, we all beat ourselves up about forgetting. I I've very rarely meet people who say their memory is great. Now, there are those people who do, and often their memory is not as good as they think it is. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, for the most part, everyone forgets, and that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're designed to do. And so I think we have this expectation that memory should be this record of the past, that we should be just recording all our experiences and be able to replay them anytime you want, right? But if you think about collecting things, you don't want to be a hoarder, right? You don't want to have, like, if we collected everything that we ever encountered and we just grabbed it and threw it in our house, you'd be a hoarder and you'd never be able to find what you're looking for, right? And so the brain, if you look at every stage of what's happening in the brain, it's all about quality over quantity. There's only a few things you can pay attention to at any given time. There's only a few things you can keep in mind at any given time. And so, and there's only a small amount of what you experience that you'll be able to remember. But what you get out of that small amount of information is huge. And so if you compare it, let's say, to your phone or something like that, the your phone has a photographic memory, but humans don't. Now, there are people who come close in some narrow areas, but even those people, they're not more successful, they're not happier, they're not, they don't have anything that make you think that somehow it's a good thing, except for the fact that it's super impressive when people <laughs> get to remember something in excruciating detail. And uh, so, yeah, so what is, so when I say remember better, what I mean is to be able to remember what matters when you need it. And to be able to see how memory is influencing you in the present and the future, because memory isn't about the past. And I think that's something that we don't appreciate. Even memory researchers, we all know this, but in our daily lives, when we're not wearing our research hat, we sometimes forget this, that it's really about the present and about the future. That was something in doing the research for this conversation totally struck me. I think for 98% of people, when they think about memory, mm -hmm. we think of it more as recall, right? Just the ability to recall something as it was. Tell us a little bit more. It sounds like from your perspective, memory is much more useful than that in shaping who we are. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think you put it really well. Memory is much more useful than we think it is. And I think rather than thinking of memory as the static record of the past, we should think of it as a pool of resources that we can draw upon at any moment. And it's a pool of resources that makes us more intelligent if we use it in an intelligent way. So I 
will say that, of course, we can use memory to recall the past, and we want to, right? But it's interesting because our memories aren't photographic, as I said. And so often we make a lot of inferences about things that never happen. Uh, one memory researcher who's very famous, Frederick Bartlett, said that we actually, he described remembering as an imaginary construction. And what he meant by that is that we don't really replay the past, but we imagine how the past could have been. And so you think, well, that's why would we want that, right? Yeah. But memory is also this resource that we can use to imagine the future and to understand the present. And that requires taking a lot of meaning. And so what memory is about is stripping down our experiences to the essentials. What do you need? And using that information so that we can, you know, if let's say the sound cut out and your listeners or if your listeners are just outside. Like I often listen to podcasts while I'm walking my dog and my dog starts barking and I get distracted. You can often still understand everything that's going on, even if you're not catching all the words, because we're using memory to create an internal model, so to speak, of what's happening at a given moment. And that internal model could be used in conversation, but it could also be used to anticipate what you're saying next, what you're really thinking. Anticipating, is he understanding me or is this not working out? It could be used to imagine, where's this conversation going to go? What am I going to do after this uh, uh, session is over? I mean, the amount of ways in which we use memory is almost limitless. Is it fair to say? that one of, if not the most important reasons we have a memory is to make educated decisions for our lives. Like, I've, I, you know what? I, the reason this is tripping me up is because memory, again, is it's consistently for the average person thought about something in the past. It is previous. It has occurred. But as you're explaining it, if you had no knowledge of this, you would think, no, I, memory is simply a tool we use to live better lives. It has nothing to actually do with being able to regurgitate what has happened. And that's weird to me. So just think about that is weird. Oh, absolutely. I, and I think I, I just want to react to two, two parts, two little parts of what you said, because everything I agree with, uh, but I'll say simply it's not simple it's actually yeah. extraordinarily complex in a beautiful way uh and then the second thing i'll add is it can be used to live a happier more effective life but it can also be misused to be you know in ways that we don't want and that was a big motivator for writing this book as well is that memory is this great resource. It's like, you know, you want it to be the first mate of the ship, so to speak, but you don't want it to be behind the wheel. I want to get into that because I've I've talked about this with my parents and things in the past. Uh, I We've interviewed somebody who talked about how much our memories get distorted. And I'll never forget, somebody told me that we can actually have two different realities or multiple different independent realities. Because if I say, if you and I saw the same car, and then in two weeks, somebody said, what color was that car? And I said red and you said brown. Then both of us actually, in our reality, it was that. 
regardless of what the actual color of the car was. Why are we not able to remember things as they actually are? And I, I yes, that's a beautiful way of putting it. We don't remember things as they actually are, partly because we don't experience things as they actually are, right? Okay. And so, I mean, we can think of it at the more most basic level. Like, I can't see ultraviolet light beyond a certain spectrum. I can't see infrared. There's all sorts of frequencies I can hear, right? So, I mean, we already know that we're not experiencing the whole range of things that are there. But more importantly, we construct meaning out of what we're trying to experience. And again, it's it's about taking this massive information overload that we have and trying to make sense of it and make use of it. And the biggest way, and we can see this when we develop computer models of how the brain works and how to optimize learning, but also how to optimize perception and how to optimize you know, movement, it's all about prediction. It's all about being able to say, let me take whatever's happening now and find the information that's use, that's most useful for what's going to happen next or what's most useful for what I could be doing next. And that, I think, is absolutely key. Um, and I can get back to your point about perspective because that's, that's a whole other interesting Yeah, point. actually, let's go there. Yeah, let's yeah. go there. So, I mean, it, there's actually quite a bit of research on this topic that... Essentially, people remember things from a particular perspective. So there's one study that I talk about in the book where people uh, who are fans of different football teams, soccer, that is for mm-hmm. Americans, you know, <laughs> but they're, they're fans of different teams and they watch the same game and they literally remember the game differently depending on what team they were supporting. Right. Uh, so you're absolutely right. On the one hand, people are watching the and paying attention to different things and making sense of the movie of the game in real time differently. But then there's an added bias because our memory, you know, Danny Kahneman really described it best. He he said, we have the experiencing self and we have the remembering self. And so, except I would often say that the experiencing self is often the remembering self too. Based on that, based on that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so in the moment people are watching a game, let's say, uh, but they're incorporating it and making a model of it based on their beliefs and they're using their memory of what happened previously to make sense of what's going on too. So then later on, we don't even have that stuff in front of us. And so we reconstruct it. And so our beliefs really come to the forefront. And so that is a big part of how we remember the event is we remember it based on our goals and our beliefs. And often our goals and beliefs, even if we don't want it to, if we're not mindful of this, is to reinforce positive aspects of ourselves. And so if I like a team and I'm trying to remember that game and I'm trying to reinforce that belief that it makes sense to be a fan of the team, I might remember more information. I might look for information that's consistent with the fact that I like my team. And so I might pull out information about some call that the ref made and really focus on the fact that the ref made a bunch of calls that went against my team. Not necessarily the calls that went against the other team, right? Right. And so, so that's, that's an example. But the one cool thing is, is that there's research that shows that if you flip your perspective, you can actually remember things that you didn't remember before. Um, and that's fascinating to me because it suggests that there is quite a bit that gets in 
but you have to work to get it sometimes. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now, I use Rocket Money, and it does all of that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month's, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. That's rocketmoney.com smart. One last time, rocketmoney.com smart. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Is that because your brain is kind of working for you to remember the things that will be most useful. It doesn't mean that everything else isn't stored. It's just that recalling those won't benefit you based on your perspective. So let's say we'll use this, this sports analogy. I'm a fan of, of team a, mm -hmm. and so I'm remembering these plays. Mm -hmm. And then I say, well, maybe I should like team B or maybe let me think about that. It will then say your brain is kind of smart enough to say, well, if you like team B, then let me pull these up for mm -hmm. you. So they're like lurking there, but we just aren't purposely seeking them out. Uh, yeah, I would say that uh, to some extent, yes, I would okay. not say that we're we have access to everything. Sure. Then, but I would say, yes, we have access to more than we think. And often that perspective is a big part of it. And so, yeah, if I'm talking to a friend who likes a different team and I'm trying to empathize with them, I can probably flip things around. And again, some of it is just the way we interpret what we pull up and the story that we construct to make, make sense of all of it. Because there's lots of studies that show that people can remember all of the many of the elements of what they experience and still put them together in a story that's not fully correct. Right. Right. And the reason is we're constantly trying to get as much as we can out of that small amount of data that we have, so to speak. I see. What do you think from an evolutionary perspective, the actual purpose of memory is? There's the simple answer, then there's the complicated answer. So I'll start off by saying it's more complicated than what I'm about to say. 
But what I'm about to, but what I will say is the purpose of memory is to make sense of the present and anticipate and prepare for an uncertain future. So what does that mean? Well, it means, you know, even single celled organisms that don't have a nervous system can learn in strange ways. And it turns out they can learn to avoid threats, you know, based on the rudimentary information that they have about them. Do most living things have some form of memory, not maybe in the way we think of it, but uh, would you say that's true? I think that if you want to use learning and memory in a very, very kind of broadest sense, yes. it's. Okay. I mean, if you think about memory as just the change in your brain that can allow you to change your behavior or your thinking from experience, then yes, um, we can see it in all sorts of worms. You can see it in fruit flies. You can see it in honeybees. People who study these model systems will often really stretch it to say how much humans, how much is conserved between, let's say, a fruit fly and a human. And I think that could sometimes go a little bit too far because the complicated part is, is that we have, you know, one way in which memory researchers like to put it, I'm not big fan of this way of putting it, but I think it's useful, is that we have different memory systems that we've evolved, meaning that over time you start building a more complex brain and adapting it to different kinds of demands. And so now you're doing more than saying, hey, this thing is a cue for getting food. You might say, well, now I want to actually find where is a good place to find food. And I want to be able to forage. And so I develop uh, uh, brain systems that allow me to navigate in the world. Um, or I might want to be able to say, hey, I can actually predict based on the last time I went to this place before it was a fruit tree that had a bunch of fruit, but now it's out of season and there's no more fruit there, right? So you don't want to keep going back. So that's where this form of memory called episodic memory really pays off. And that's your ability to learn from a single event, right? And so we have this, at the most basic level, I think the, the most important forms of memory to me are what people call semantic memory. And this is the knowledge that we can accrue from multiple experiences and, and take with us and make inferences and generalizations about things that we've never experienced. And then we have episodic memory, this ability to just form a singular memory from something that we've experienced based on total coincidences, just things that happen at a moment at a place in time, right? So the two types of memory, there's one that kind of you experience it once and you'll remember it likely because it was quite powerful, potentially dangerous. You know, we use the touch a hot stove type thing. And mm -hmm. that's called, which one is that? Well, so... Episodic memory doesn't necessarily have to be touch a hot stove, but it obviously is, is boosted by that. But yeah, episodic memory is the ability to just say, hey, one time this thing happened and to be able to use that information. And it, it just so happens that episodic memory tends to be best for these things that are significant or what psychologists would say is salient, meaning things that are associated with the hot stove, let's say, or, you know, poisonous snake, or it could be a, um, it could be like you discover food somewhere, but it could also be something along the lines of surprise. It could be something like you told me 
something about my favorite band that I didn't know before. And those would be things too that that episodic memory really magnifies. So it tends to magnify the things that are the most significant in some way, shape, or form. Okay. But then the other one, which is the one I, I, I'm, as we're talking, I'm finding most interesting is this idea of like, we can take all of these disparate memories, make meaning out of them, use that meaning to fill in gaps of things we've never experienced. So like I could be on a different planet. Mm -hmm. So clearly I've never been here, but based on all of my experiences, my brain is doing its best to say everything I remember is leading me to believe that when I open this door, this is what's going to happen type thing. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. Cool. And you can, people are exceptionally good at doing that kind of generalization, even with very few experiences. So we, again, we really do the most to make, to make the most out of as little data as possible. Sometimes that comes back to kick us in the ass, but you know, other, uh, but Often it's exceptionally powerful. And I think it's one of the many ways in which humans are different from, let's say, AI. Um, AI systems learn very slowly and they have to because what happens is otherwise the new information can erase the old information effectively. Um, and because we have episodic memory, we can say, hey, we can actually learn through semantic memory. Here's the rule, here's what generally happens. And then we can say, here's the exception to the rule, right? So for instance, and, and you can see this even in people's, the most basic things that happen under the radar. So for instance, if you walk into a kitchen, the first thing you might do without even knowing it is direct your eyes towards the counters and the stovetop. And you're looking for objects that can be there based on your knowledge of every time you've been in a kitchen. Now, if you walk into, let's say, my kitchen at some point, and you happen to see a coffee maker on the floor, even after that one point in time, you can come back to my kitchen and your eyes will gravitate towards the floor. So we have both of those capabilities. And that ability to both learn the exceptions and the rules is something that the human brain does exceptionally well. And I think that's, that's a much harder problem for traditional machine learning. Okay. That makes sense. And it, it leads me to, and you've alluded to this a couple of times, the flaws in this system. And what I mean by that is, let's take something I'm familiar with. There have been times in my life where I've experienced something that was like immensely terrifying, right? Mm. But, but, but mostly imagined yep. fear. Okay then that changes future behavior in a way that is not necessarily beneficial. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or you could take somebody, take anything, people who are uh, afraid of flying or something like that. If there's no real use to remembering it incorrectly, why would we do it? And number two is, I don't know this, but do you have any recommendations on how we might overcome that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to come back to this issue of this emotional part of the memory, because I think it's, it's really important. Actually, let me just say it now. Uh, so one of the interesting things that we know from memory research is that if you think about what happens in the brain, there's a difference between your memory for what happened and the context in which it happened versus how you feel when you remember that experience. 
So we tend to put it all together into this objective relationship that that was a scary event. But really what it is, is there's the, you know, there's the nuts and bolts of what happened. And there's the physical sensations that we get when we remember these, especially, you know, or these primitive responses, so to speak, that our brain generates when we go back to particularly painful or particularly arousing or, you know, particularly positive experiences. And that all gets put together into a narrative that put, gets put together into a story. And that story, you know, I, I like to say that memory is not like a photograph. It's more like a painting, right? So I'm a lousy artist, but if I tried to paint a picture of you, I would have some aspects of this picture that would be somewhat accurate. I would have some parts of this picture, like your eye color, let's say, or something. And I would have some parts of this picture that were just objectively inaccurate. But a lot of it would be my perspective. A lot of it would be things that are neither true nor false. They're just based on kind of a deeper sense of my understanding of who you are, right? And that's what we love about great art is we love, we don't want to see something that looks exactly like what we saw. We want to actually see something that captures the essence of what the artist is trying to do, right? And I think this is what our memories are, is they're essentially like works of art. They're really these uh, things that we can put together to capture the essence of what happened. Now, the problem is, is that sometimes what we think of as the, you know, sometimes that can be things that haunt us. Sometimes that can be things that we feel a lot of shame and guilt about. And uh, sometimes they're just objectively horrible things that you can say nobody should have ever experienced. And um, and if you look at like people with PTSD, I mean, a big part of their problem is, is that these memories pop up at times and places that have very little to do with what, you know, the actual context of the memory. Right. So that's I used a to great work... one. Like, yeah, PTSD. I, I know that's where you're going, but that's a great one. Something happens right in a terrible, mm -hmm. terrible situation, but then it almost malfunctions to, to uh, lead you to make decisions that technically aren't really beneficial in the long run. So, yeah. And what you can see in people with PTSD is that in fact, they have some memory problems that are related to changes in their brain. Now, I don't want to make too broad generalizations because this is averages across people who've been studied in different experiments. But on average, there are changes in the brain that happen. And to some extent, we don't know the chicken and egg issue. Sometimes it may be the case that, you know, multiple people can experience the same traumatic event and not you know, not all of them will develop PTSD. Uh, but at the same time, it's fairly clear that chronic stress um, or and especially if you have a traumatic event that you keep reliving over and over again, has toxic effects on the brain's systems for memory. And also uh, an area that I really love is the prefrontal cortex that's involved in using memory, but also not using memory <laughs> to guide our decisions and our behavior and um, and construct these stories that we want to construct, basically making it all goal-directed and useful. And so that's a big part of the picture, but that gets, um, that gets hijacked in PTSD, both because the emotional responses that you get 
the visceral responses. You should get the, you know, the fight or flight kind of uh, feeling that you have basically turns off some of the prefrontal cortex. But on top of it, when you have things that have stressors that happen over and over and over again, those stress related hormones and uh, actually have a toxic effect over time. And so, so that's a big part of it too. Yeah. I, I might've drifted from the question. No, but... no, no. I think we're just diving deeper into it actually, which is, do we know yet why the, the brain has the ability to malfunction like that? I mean, you would think with, with such complexity, mm-hmm. it would be able to, to, to parse out. You're not in a war zone anymore. Therefore you don't need to worry about this, mm-hmm. even though it happens for PTSD, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, just as a beautiful example of this, uh, well, it's a tragic example, I should say. Uh, when I was uh, in grad school, I trained in clinical psychology. And so one of my experiences was running a therapy group for veterans. And these were mostly Vietnam vets who had, uh, many of them had PTSD and I remember one of the uh, one of the individuals in this group telling a story about how the Fourth of July and everyone, many people in the group nodded when they heard this. The Fourth of July was a terrible time for them because they would hear fireworks and they would flash back to gunshots. Right now, you can look at that and say objectively, and you know, there's a theory of PTSD that is basically this: that what that is is. Normally, our episodic memories are rooted in a particular context. That is something that tells us about the place and time in which that event happened. And so what happens in PTSD is that context may become too overgeneralized, meaning that things that are even remotely related to the traumatic event are still effective at bringing back that event, right? So that's very bad. But on the other hand, imagine if you had an episodic memory that was so specific that everything had to be exactly the way it was when you originally experienced it, which never happens in the real world, right? That would lead you to have very poor episodic memory to the point where you'd almost never be able to use it. So it's always a fine balance. And if you think about it, if there's one area where evolution might want to be to play it safe, it's with life and death experiences, things that are threats, things that are fundamentally shape us when we're at our most vulnerable points. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Crazy. So just to kind of reiterate, let's take that Vietnam vet. They are in a jungle. It's daytime. You know, they're with three buddies and uh, they start getting shot at. Right. And that's their traumatic memory. And then 20 years later, they hear fireworks and it, it comes back up. Number one, to my question of why would our brain do that? You're saying, well, it has to make some assumptions or it has to be 
creative in some extent, because if not, the only time your body would respond is when you, it's the daytime, you're in a jungle, there's three people, right? That's right. Other than that. So that's actually of no use. So it, it tries to know context, but especially when it comes to things that are life and death, it might say, eh, let's err on the side of caution. That's because right. although this might be really uncomfortable and in today's society, well beyond uncomfortable to the point of catastrophic, but your body and your brain doesn't necessarily know that. So it pushes the boundaries a little bit and we deem that as undesirable, but in the evolutionary context, it, it might be as good as it can do. That's right. That's right. And I think it's, uh, you know, there's an aspect to PTSD that's especially tragic, which is every time somebody has this flashback and it gets to the point where there's almost a state of panic that creates a new memory because this is another fascinating aspect of memory is, is that every time we recall a memory, we can actually change it. And we and that is again, you know, something that's very different than pushing play. It's like we're pushing play and record at the same time. Right. So you recall a traumatic memory now in new situations in new places. And now that traumatic memory is taken on a life of its own because it's not locked into one place and time, it now becomes slowly kind of spreading to other places and other times, right? And so I think where the problem comes in is not being able to say, hey, this thing happened at this one point in time, but that fireworks, you know, those fireworks or the sound of a car backfiring or, you know, a Harley Davidson going down the street, all those things now are actually traumatic experiences in and of themselves to your brain because they brought back that same kind of visceral response and that memory of being under threat. Okay, and I think this is what you were talking about earlier. Part of this is the thing that brings that memory about, when we remember it, it then evokes this emotion, and if it's that powerful or if it's then that emotion can be one of those ones or fight or flight, which then downregulates the prefrontal cortex, which doesn't allow us to think extremely rationally about it. So it's almost this, the flood we feel, and everybody's been there, when you remember something perhaps scary or whatever, it's not the memory's fault. It's just our response to that memory based on our, our biology and, and uh, things like that. I think I think I mean, that's that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I think that's a very good way of putting it. That it's that we have this very primitive survival response, right? I and I maybe I would take back. Let's not call it primitive. Let's just say we have these survival systems in our brain that kick in that give us that visceral sense, and at the same and that mobilizes our brain in a particular way in a particular state, and what happens often is it takes a life of its own and we interpret that in certain ways. And that is where things really can run off the rails is if we start to then panic in the present and, uh, and so forth. And, and I don't want to trivialize any of these experiences because it's like, there's things like, you know, uh, night sweats and, uh, you know, nightmares that are frequent to PTSD. We don't even understand how that happens. Right. Um, but there's all sorts of aspects of PTSD that, that we don't understand. But there are parts of it that we do understand. Many of these experiences are associated with shame and guilt, for instance. And many of these experiences people don't like to talk about. 
um, I certainly saw this in the veterans. It's like there's a big part of what happened with PTSD, which is that people felt like they weren't supposed to be feeling this way, that they were supposed to be, especially because most of the people, many of the people I saw were male, but even the female veterans I saw were very tough and, you know, really didn't felt that this was a sign of weakness. And Vietnam was especially tough because on the one hand, people who went into Vietnam were on average younger than in previous wars. So their brains were more plastic in some ways. And uh, and another part of it was they came back to a country that wasn't necessarily supportive of them. Exactly. And there was more shame and guilt associated with that. And so, you know, on the flip side of it, one of the great things that I learned about in the VA and I mean, it's funny because I was treating people, but on the other hand, I was learning so much in the process. And one of the things I really learned about was we would do these groups for the veterans. And a big part of what was going on was somebody would share these things that they might never have told anyone, or they might have told a few people, but those people didn't understand it, or they weren't listening to it, and they didn't get it. And so a big part of what was happening in these groups was hearing people like telling your story to people who actually had an understanding and people who are listening and then creating a new narrative about it, putting it in a different perspective, which is something we've, you know, coming back to this idea of perspective is reframing that memory in a new way. And that is a one of the most powerful parts of psychotherapy, in my opinion, is this ability to access these memories that we're locked into a particular perspective with and to be able to just appreciate it from a different perspective and to essentially revise and update that memory. I find this so useful because once you talk about what memory is and we and we make that leap, which I don't think many people make. It doesn't come about in daily life, right? Like memory is more useful for our future than it is for our past. And so once we make that leap and then we understand something like we're using PTSD in this example, you then realize how powerful these are, uh, potentially one of the most powerful inputs to your life. And so if it's not working optimally, I'm not talking about improving how much you remember, but remembering better, which Mm -hmm. is your point. What do you recommend? What are the actual tangible steps of modifying memories to allow us to live a better present and future life? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is there's many examples in the book. One Mm -hmm. that I'll give you that I think is especially timely is what happens with nostalgia. So one of the interesting things that people have found with memory research is as people get older, their ability to form new memories is not quite as good. Uh, But when we look back on the past, we tend to have a positive bias in the memories that we access. So there's this little optimistic bias that sometimes happens. But what can also happen is, is that if you engage in nostalgia, you can get a bit stuck and you can approach it from the perspective of saying, the world used to be so great. I used to have such a great life and now things suck, right? And so what you need to keep in mind is whenever we're looking through the lens of memory, it's always selective. 
and it's always going, you know, we're not going to remember, like if I remember a vacation I took last year, I'm going to focus on certain parts of the memory that are most meaningful to me. I'm not going to remember every moment that I spent in front of, you know, looking at a thousand, every Airbnb that I didn't select. I'm not going to remember the amount of time that I spent waiting in line at security, worried that I'm going to get COVID, you know, all those things are not part of it. And so uh, there's a way in which that nostalgia can be bad for us in the present if we don't use it properly. And it can even be weaponized, right? And this whole, you know, make America great again. Well, America was pretty great in a lot of ways before, but it's also pretty great in a lot of ways now. And 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 I think this is a, a, a trap that we can fall into if we're not careful. Um, and likewise, ruminating is another great example where we look back, when we do look back on the negative things, there's regret or there's, a sense of guilt or, you know, like, why didn't I do this? Why, why did I say this? And so forth. And again, looking back on these negative experiences can be productive and we can use that in a way to say, Hey, I made a mistake next time. I'm not going to do this again. Or we can look back and we can say, I didn't make a mistake. And yeah, I know this person was making me feel guilty or something like that, but I was in the right. I'm okay with that. But whatever it is, we can make sense of it in a more productive and future-oriented way, right? I can look back with nostalgia and say, hey, I remember this time when I was really curious and active. Why don't I do this again? Why don't I just take up a new language or why don't I you know, take up a new hobby? And because that's a part of me. And so there's even great studies showing that if you remember times in which you are altruistic, you can be more altruistic in the present, right? So we can actually take that selectivity of memory and that ability to affect us in the present and use it in good ways. Uh, gratitude practices are another example. I've been trying to do this, but a lot of these things that I talk about, I try to do, but it's, it's time. Well, it's hard. Better. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. Because you have to use your prefrontal cortex, and it's all about that effort. Um, Seriously. <laughs> but gratitude practices are a great one because I started to do this on some suggestions from people where it was not about, I'm thankful to have a home, I'm thankful to be, you know, have loved ones. Yes, of course. But it's more like, I'm thankful today for the fact that I got an email from someone who said that they loved my book or something, or I'm happy today because I had a conversation with my daughter that, you know, she told me a joke that made me happy. These little things that are not necessarily the most, you know, profound experiences. If I use my memory to look back on those things, inevitably I feel good. And inevitably I start, because I do tend to ruminate. I do tend to have a little bit of a, you know, I should have done more today. But if I go back and I remember the things that I did accomplish today, I feel so much better. <laughs> and, and so that's a great example of how you can remember better in a way that makes you makes your life better. You know what that just reminded me of or sparked in my thinking is, and again, this could be complete BS. So mm -hmm. just tell me if it is like, I, I always try to figure out how can I use this to just mm -hmm. be better and live a better life, right? Let's say it's right now when we're recording this, at least it's barely the new year. It's yeah. January 5th. Um, and let's say I've decided 
in 2024, I want to be healthier. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's very common, right? Would this make sense memory wise? If I sat down, I spent time thinking about this person I want to become, this person I am, I'm healthy, I exercise, I eat right. Will that then bring up more memories of when I was that person and therefore naturally lead me to more likely do those behaviors? I mean, that is a stretch, but I I could see that happening. Like I've almost convinced myself I am this person. Then I'll remember when I was that person and then I'll naturally become that person. Yeah. I I mean, what I would say is is that I think that there's definitely something to it. I can't guarantee you results, right? But nah, I was hoping you could. <laughs> but, no, but there are, I mean, you can also flip it around and say when we fail to get into the, so when we remember a particular event, there's a, a psychologist named Endel Tulving who described it as mental time travel, meaning to some extent our mind reboots itself back to a state that it was in at a particular place in time, Right. So if I can remember this time when I said to myself, when I was living a healthier lifestyle, and if I can get cues that bring me back, not only to the knowledge that I used to have a healthier lifestyle, but a specific, you know, maybe music I used to listen to back when I was working out or something like that, or, you know, visualizing the place that I was in at that time in my life when I used to do more healthy practices that will get you in that mindset. And once you're in that mindset, you can access parts of yourself that you might have forgotten that you had. And we can see this in the opposite too. There, there's fascinating work in social psychology where they talk about um, what they call the empathy gap, where people will essentially, they'll say, oh, well, I'm going to stop drinking. And they forget at that moment those times where they felt the urge to drink. And so when they're in that moment, they will drink because they don't anticipate what their future self will do. Um, But on the other hand, if you could go back and say, I remember not only that I, you know, had way too much to drink at this party, and that's why I have this hangover. But I remember here's the conditions that led up to it. Here is this kind of like, you know, this feeling this urge that I had. And if I can get back not only to what happened, but that set of circumstances and the, you know, the emotions that I was feeling at the time, you can go, oh my God, those are the conditions. And that's what I have to avoid. And we could see this when I used to work in the clinic too, is that uh, I worked with addictions. And one of the things that was the hardest to deal with with addictions was you could get people were so committed to changing their behavior, but they couldn't change the context that they were in. So one of uh, the patients I worked with was such a beautiful human being, and he had multiple drug problems that he was dealing with, was clean for almost a year. But you know, he would visit his family, and one person in his family was a drug dealer. And, you know, what can you do? You're in that context, and it just brings up these. You can even see this in rats, actually. If you give rats drugs in a particular place, they will prefer to be in that place, you know? And so it's like that context is so tied to 
what you're going to feel and what you're going to do into the memories that really you you have to be both you can use that in a positive way to bring back contexts that bring out the best in you but you also to some extent have to accept the fact that context can also bring out the things that you don't want to have happen and it's not just a matter of free will and so as a result it's a matter of avoiding the context that gets you in trouble in the first place as opposed to trying to will your way through it use that memory to determine here's who i want to be here's who i am in that context there's a gap or a change in behavior do we know how memory actually works because <laughs> I, I that is insane to me mm-hmm. think about this how can i remember at five years old, the smell of my sheets, the color of the walls, like where do they live? How do, what, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting that you brought up five years old because, you know, in early childhood, one of the, so I'll just say, first of all, you know, I talk a lot about what we know about memory in the book, but at the end, a spoiler alert, I say, we don't know how memory works. And it's real deep. the amount that we don't know is so much bigger than the amount we know. I actually talk, I love to talk about, you know, in astrophysics, they say something like 95% of the, you know, dark matter, you know, there's most of the universe is dark matter and dark energy, which are unobservable with current instruments. And that to me is the pinnacle of scientific knowledge. If you actually have so much of an idea of what we can't see, you know, and I think memory research, it's, it's like that, that there's a lot of dark energy that we don't understand, but there is a lot that we do understand too, or there's educated guesses we can make that get us pretty far. And so, uh, you know, I think one of the, there are certain principles that get us very, very far so you can see this both in just if you study behavior or also if you try to look at, you model how neurons might interact with each other to form memories. And so uh, there's lots and lots of debates that go all the way from molecules, the, the roles they play in you know, learning to you know the big biggest picture things you can think of. But if you essentially, the most people would agree, I think, that memories are formed through coalitions of neurons that start talking to each other more or less, depending on the the context, after you've had a particular experience. You change the way these neurons interact with each other, right? And there's multiple experiences that you can have that are often competing because you have competing coalitions of neurons, just like you might have two politicians that might be you know running for the primary or something and they've got similar coalitions that might be overlapping coalitions that might support both of them right and so that competition is there and so for people who just are listening to all this and they're like okay you've told me all this esoteric stuff but i want to actually memorize things i think the, the big thing that i talk about is in this quality versus quantity thing is that you want to focus on the most distinctive elements of what you experience to reduce that competition. So the things that we struggle with the most, like where did I put my keys? The problem is I put my keys in a thousand places over the course of you know a month or something, right? Exactly. And so that just creates gobs and gobs of competition in memory. You know, even though most of those memories won't stick around, still we gobs and gobs of competition. 
And so we really have to focus on what is distinctive about this particular moment that's different. And so a big part of, you know, remembering better is not <laughs> not remembering sometimes and focus being mindful on what's happening in the present so that you can actually form memories that are distinctive and useful to you. So again, it's a pool of resources, but you don't want to use it all the time. You know, just because you have a hammer, not everything's a nail, right? Last night I had uh, drinks with an old high school friend. I mean, I haven't seen him in 20 something years and we were talking about some things and he brought up like his baseball all-star team when he was nine and this, and I said, how do you remember all these things? And he kind of almost dismissively was like, well, because I don't know, baseball is my life and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And there's two thoughts that went through my head. The first was like, oh, well, why don't I remember that? But then the second one, and I'm not saying I'm right, but is I often pride myself and like, well, I didn't need to remember that. And I've got limited storage. So I'm just not attaching any purpose to that sp that specific of a memory or like what road this was on mm -hmm. like i'll never need to know that again so i'm actually glad that i'm not is that relatively fair like we do we all do that to some extent consciously or subconsciously based on what we deem important i think that's very true i do think there are times where something just randomly pops up that you would that is kind of useless and actually as we get older it turns out that uh, that happens more. So one of the things that I talk about in the book, which uh, you know, I, I read some things that really got me excited about this idea is that, so you mentioned being five years old. And when you look at children, their episodic memory is, you know, seeming it's odd because a child's episodic memory is not very good uh, in terms of remembering where and when things happen. But they soak up in experiences like, so beautifully well, right? So something odd is happening during childhood. And a big part of it is that children do have this ability to remember things in certain ways, but it's not very goal-directed. It's kind of all over the place. And of course, you know, if you have kids, you know this, is that, you know, whatever is in front of them that's capturing their attention at the moment, right? But if you think about a traditional society that, you know, for most of homo sapiens existence would be there children would be left essentially to explore and learn through curiosity and through just getting random information so now you're you reach you're an adult and you have a fully functioning prefrontal cortex and your job is to hunt and gather and so you are going out in the world and you need to be goal focused and you need to remember everything that's totally relevant so then you become older than that. You're no longer at a reproductive age and so forth. But now you start to lose your episodic memory. But your semantic memory, your knowledge of the world is still there, right? And what's your job, again, throughout most of human existence? It's to pass on the cultural knowledge that you already have that you've accrued over this lifetime. And so, yes, you could be remembering random things because you're not your frontal function isn't as good, you won't be able to form new memories so well because you've got this, like, you know, because uh, other parts of the episodic memory system start to decline. But your job is really to pass on the traditions to the children. You're often even caring for the children in many of these societies, right? And you can even see, if you look at other animals, this might be 
way speculative. This is way speculative. But if you look at other animals that have a lifespan long above puberty, one that comes to mind is uh, orcas. And orcas are actually led by the grandmothers in an orca pod. And they're the ones that pass on the tradition. So different pods of orcas have very different traditions of hunting, very different traditions of play. And so that's passed on by the orca grandmothers, right? And so I, th I think that one of the lessons there is, is again, embracing the limits that we have and seeing it as part of, you know, the design choices that evolution brought upon us, because there's some great advantages to having different ways of remembering at different stages of your life. Well, and I think that if anything, that's what this discussion has illuminated for me, right? It's where we started. Photographic memory sounds cool. Is it actually that much more useful? If you think about the way in which we use memory and why we have it, maybe not. And to think of it instead, as I try to think about many aspects of our body, it's like it, it serves its purpose in the way it needs to at the moment. And when it doesn't, it's perhaps because, as we were talking about PTSD, um, because it's still trying its best, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Charin, I, I, I love this conversation. The book is Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. I really like this idea. Let's not try to remember more, but remember better. Um, and so we will absolutely link to that. Uh, anything else, you know, are you consistently writing about this? Are you putting information out about memory or was kind of the book, this, this, this big crescendo, uh, so you could send our listeners anywhere else? Oh, well, we have, I actually have a website called, uh, .com, And so people can go to that website and sign up for a newsletter, which I'm going to start writing soon. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm going to put periodic pieces of, uh, you know, just periodic nuggets of my, ideas or inspirations or things like that a lot of pop culture too i love pop culture so a lot of pop culture That's references fantastic. to memory and i'm gonna have a couple of op-eds coming up one for the guardian uh and yeah so my hope is this is just the beginning and uh you know because i think keep on be. getting the word out to as many people as possible well, I think that's going to happen. I, I think it's fascinating. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thank you. This has been great. And thanks for all your great awesome. questions. A thank you to this week's guest, Sharon Ranganath. The episode was hosted, as always, by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Sharon's book, Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters, is available wherever books are sold. Now let's jump into the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.